You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. It's been nearly a year since we started publishing episodes of Talking Taiwan on a weekly basis at the beginning of this pandemic, and I've really enjoyed seeing the listenership grow. So I wanted to take a moment here to acknowledge our listeners. In that time, I've had listeners reach out to me directly. One listener who reached out said that episode 99 with Professor Scott Simon was particularly eye-opening. This led me to think about how to cover the topic of Taiwan's indigenous people and to interview Tony Coolidge about discovering his indigenous roots and his work with the indigenous people of Taiwan. The two episodes I did with Tony are now amongst the most listened to. And recently, we've also gotten some wonderful anonymous reviews from listeners. Amazing podcast. Really enjoy listening to it. Love the variety of people that come on. And just a few days ago, another listener wrote, Love all the topics that has been discussed in Talking Taiwan. We are so grateful for all of this feedback. Your reviews help Talking Taiwan to get discovered. It's great to know that we have a regular listener base and that our content is resonating with you. Thank you for reaching out and letting us know how we're doing. Without further ado, I'd like to share part two of my interview with Dr. Karen Tsai about her work with Donate PPE, a nonprofit that she has co-founded and that has raised over $150,000 to date. I'd like to talk about your work with the Donate PPE as well. I understand that organization has raised over $150,000 already. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that? How did you get that started and about your co-founders and team? Yeah, of course. So Donate PPE actually started mid-March. And the the reason behind why this this started was because a lot of us, you know, including myself, um, you know, dealt with firsthand noticing the huge deficit of PPE proportional to, uh, you know, the, the stream of COVID patients literally coming into our hospital. And from my personal anecdotal experience, uh, you know, I was, I, I found it very, very challenging to have access to PPE, especially with, uh, you know, with the new, uh, you know, at the time we had really very, very, very limited knowledge of what COVID meant. You know, how do we protect ourselves? How do we protect our colleagues? making sure that we could take care of our patients as a priority. And so at the time, you know, we, we started noticing that a lot of our colleagues, um, especially in those hard-hit areas like New York City, uh, in, in the tri-state area, like in the surrounding New Jersey, Connecticut area, Long Island, mm-hmm. um, and then New Orleans, and then Seattle, Washington area as well, too. Mm-hmm. I started noticing that there was a, there, there was a lot of, you know, news and, and chatter about, you know, PPE deficits, how healthcare workers felt felt inadequately prepared uh, to, you know, really fight this virus um, and really take care of the patients and take care of their loved ones. Um, Because, you know, as as you know, you know, as you you, after work, you come back home. And Mm -hmm. so then, you know, whatever you deal with at home, sometimes you accidentally, you know, actually expose your your family members. And so we wanted to make sure that we had adequate PPB to provide uh, these frontline healthcare workers um, so that they can really take care of patients and make sure that they were they were kept safe and their families safe. And so this was coming around about like March, I would say. Uh-huh. And then at that time I was hearing, my background is I went to medical school out in Long Island at Stony Brook in New York. Uh-huh. And so a lot of my colleagues were saying, well, you know, we are given one N95 mask use indefinitely. Oh, dear. We started seeing, you know, internationally when Italy was getting mm-hmm. hard hit, they were also having, you know, shortages of PPE. And so, 
you know, this was a thought that kind of arose in my head because, you know, in LA we are, you know, you know, fortunate that our, our, our surge didn't hit until much, much later, hmm. but we were, you know, dealing with this and seeing our colleagues saying, wow, you know, we, this actually hit overnight, like COVID literally just slammed our emergency room doors mm-hmm. and we were not prepared mm-hmm. at the same time too we wanted to make sure that we could provide and shuttle pv to these much needed areas so i actually at the time you know i was trying to collect donations locally in my hospital i had this like concept of you know i just want to make sure my colleagues were safe in my hospital but then i realized there was a huge a, a larger need and a huge mm-hmm. need in all these hard hit areas so at the time coincidentally of a friend of a friend um, I got connected to Dayu, who's also our other co-founder, and together we created this nonprofit organization called DonatePC.org. We've been in in operation since literally almost a year now, since the pandemic started in, in, in March, and since it actually hit our uh, you know borders in, mm-hmm. in the United States. And we've grown our team up to a, a team of almost 40, 50 individuals at one point at the peak of uh, of, of um, you know the pandemic, mm-hmm. and um, now we have a, a team of about. 10 to 15 individuals, strong individuals, uh, you know, volunteering for this uh, organization. And we're super proud and, you know, very, very accomplished. We are all Asian Americans really, um, you know, um, really, really driving home, um, you know, this message of, you know, PPE is much needed. We want to make sure that PPE is adequately distributed to areas in need. And a lot of these, these areas now that we're distributing to are very, you know, low income, low service areas, a lot of areas that maybe you could not have gone PP otherwise um, due to lack of funding or to limited uh, distribution networks, um, you know, by the city or by the government and through emergency operations. And so we've donated to, you know, literally like, I can't even think about like where, but like throughout the entire nation and we work with so many other organizations to expand our outreach. I can't even like name how many organizations <sighs> we've donated. I would say probably over to like, I think 500 unique wow. places. Um, we've worked with so many nonprofits, mm. a ton of corporations, you know, anywhere from Ford Motors to Norwex to Citizens of Humanity, um, which is a, a, a premium gene brand uh, based in Los Angeles, um, you know, to Unique, Unique Flow, uh, to Honda. I, I really can't even name all of the companies, uh, you know, small and large. We've, we've been able to work with so many companies and I still, even to this day, I was like responding to like 20 emails of like these <laughs> donations. And I'm like, how did these donations even come about? I mean, I'm just like so amazed. And today we've already donated almost close to 4.5 million PPE items nationwide. Wow. And we've also donated internationally mm-hmm. to uh, low in, you know, like, like third world countries, um, a lot of areas in Africa mm-hmm. where, you know, PPE is hugely desperately needed. Yet they are they have no means of getting PPE. And so mm-hmm. these donations have really meant a lot to individuals. Um, I, I can say firsthand, uh, you know, how much the, the donations have really meant to me as a healthcare worker and being able to go to work and having that sense of security um, that PPE will be available so I can take care of my patients and, you know, make sure that I can protect my, myself and my family um, when I come home. It's been a huge priority um, for our group and our organization. And we're really, you know, we've, we've expanded our, you know, throughout the times of, of COVID and this past year, we've really, you know, expanded to so many areas that we wouldn't even imagine once we started this organization. Initially, we're thinking, you know, our priorities, healthcare workers, hospitals, and eventually as, as, as those, as the supply chains in those areas were fulfilled and met over time, we expanded to nursing homes because a lot of COVID patients are getting discharged to nursing homes to recover post-discharge. 
And then thereafter, a lot of a lot of patients, um, you know, were going back to the clinics. And so, you know, we wanted to make sure that the free clinics, um, especially, um, you know, were getting adequate PPE because, you know, things have changed over the last, you know, year with, you know, what is what is what is needed to make sure these clinics are adequately safe and staffed um, appropriately with an, enough PPE. And so over time, you know, as schools opened up in the fall, we made sure that schools were adequately, you know, uh, had like enough adequate PPE. And we were, I remember we were shipping pallets of like gallons on gallons on gallons of sanitizer. Um, and we were working with a local distillery out in Chicago and, um, you know, really, you know, getting a lot of sanitizers to, I don't even know how many areas, uh, you know, and how many schools, school districts there were. Um, but we, we have been super fortunate. And, and even now I, you know, I've been, do- we've been donating a ton of PPE items to senior homes, nursing, nursing facilities, taking care of, uh, underprivileged, uh, communities. Um, we've been donated to the Navajo nations and some rural areas out in the Midwest. And um, especially with now with mass vaccinations, uh, mass vaccination sites opening up, we've donated a ton of PPI to those areas in need. I would have never imagined in a whole year that this has been, you know, really like still working at like full full speed. I can't even begin to think, you know, how many people we've impacted through our organization and through the generosity of so many donors, um, you know, financially and, um, you know, giving, giving so many PPE. We had so many donors who, you know, just like, found N95 mask in their home, you know, they were collecting it, you know, out, out of necessity for, you know, earthquake, for, for, uh, earthquake uh, prevention kits or fire kits in, in Los Angeles in the, in, in the Southern California area and in NorCal. And so uh, we were so grateful because during those times, you know, that N95 mask meant so much to another individual across the nation. Yeah, it's incredible all the outreach that you did and the flexibility that you had to uh, help different segments of the population in need. As um, you said, you started off with the frontline workers and then you realized that there are other segments of the population that were in need that uh, didn't have access to PPE and you're able to address that. Um, Kudos to you and your team for that. Is the entire team or all the co-founders Asian American? Yeah, so I would say... Most of us are Asian American. Um, I would say our core team right now, all the executives on our board are all Asian American. And, and that, that's actually really, really important to highlight, I, I, especially with what's going on in the world right now. Um, you know, there's been a lot of increasing number of Asian hate crimes and um, xenophobia towards Asians. And so that's really something that our group has really addressed. And we want to try to increase uh, awareness, you know, um, especially, you know, this virus has really, um, you know, impacted so much in the Asian community. We have gotten so many, um, you know, an outpouring amount of uh, response and donations from um, Asian Americans. And, uh, you know, so many people who have wanted to really make an impact, um, you know, in the in, during this time and help these other uh, areas in need. And so it's really something, you know, that we we find is true and dear to our heart. And we're very proud to be Asian Americans um, to really be help, helping this cause. Just like on a personal note, um, I do have some friends who we are having a conversation and feeling very concerned and frustrated about the increasing hate crimes against Asian Americans. Would you have any recommendations of things that people can do or advocacy groups that might be able to help people at this time? Yeah, so there's there's a lot of advocacy uh, in this in this field right now, just because it's 
just been growing in, in, in number and there's just so much xenophobia out there still uh, towards Asians. And there's, there's actually a couple of good resources that I found that, that really, uh, you know, really highlight what's actually going on uh, during this time. So one is hate as a virus and the other one is stop AAPI hate. Um, and those are two great resources that individuals can uh, learn more about what's going on. Have there been any major challenges with the work that you do at DonateFeeFee? Fee? What was the biggest challenge to overcome? Yeah, so off the top of my head, I can think of a couple of challenges that we've dealt with as an organization. The first is really finding the right individuals who are motivated to uh, really empower our mission. And I think that was a big challenge, I would say, you know, Day, you and I started this organization basically from the ground up, and we didn't have the expertise or knowledge in a lot of areas uh, to really fill the gaps in our organization. And so um, we were very, very fortunate to be able to have a huge response from, um, you know, friends of friends who were really interested in our organization and the mission that we were uh, trying to achieve and accomplish. And so you know, I had no experience with PR and, you know, social media. And, you know, honestly, for me, I couldn't even really put like anything aside from just an Instagram post together. Wasn't sure how to really even tag people and tag organizations. That for me was a huge challenge, even managing, um, you know, responses to individuals, um, you know, who message us through Instagram. All of that stuff was just really just so challenging from the get go, even trying to get media coverage of what our organization really um, was doing and you know the the great work that we've been doing was just also a challenge as well too I literally recall s- sending so many like emails out there just to you know different media channels and um, to different individuals trying to see if we can you know capture what we're doing to increase our uh, distribution network and increase our donation capacity and so I think that was a huge challenge was really just trying to find the individuals and we're very fortunate um, we have great PR individuals uh, Michael, who who's a former classmate of mine, and I actually knew him from a friend of a friend. We weren't really that close in high school, but through our organization, we were able to reconnect, and he's been so pivotal in our organization. Um, there's another individual as well, too, Kenny, who uh, came on earlier um, um, in our organization when we were starting up, and he has a lot of experience with working with brand strategy and marketing, and he really helped us guide our organization and really rebrand our organization um, to what it is today. A lot of the logos, you know, we, you know, there's a whole thing about, you know, color coordinating, making sure that you have the right palette and, you know, the, the, the finer details that we really, I never really had experience in doing, but really your outward appearance of what your organization is, it can increase uh, visibility and increase trust uh, amongst um, other individuals. And so really fortunate to have, um, you know, these individuals really step up to the plate and really feel the, fill the voids and gaps that we needed during those times. Um, another, I think, very tangible story for me that really resonated um, was when we were doing Norwex's uh, million mask donation, um, and that was just such a hard, like, just a logistical challenge in itself. We were getting uh, masks from overseas that were donated from Norwex, bringing it over to the States, and I recall at that time, we really had, you know, we were doing this literally, like, in our garages, like, like basically at home, we had no office space, no distribution center, nothing. And at the time we were trying to figure out where can we, where can we find a place to store all these items, all these donations that we're getting. It's something that you could even imagine or fathom. Like at the time we were doing like 
you know, five masks here, 10 masks there, a box of gloves there. And then when you get approached for like a million masks, like you don't even know what that looks like in pallet form. It's like 10 pallets coming from overseas on planes. It was, it was a huge challenge. Day you and I literally had no experience doing this. And I recall at the time trying to reach out to figure out how do we get the manpower, first of all, to distribute all these items. Really key areas at the time of the peak of the pandemic. And also in addition, how do we get this pallet stored in an area or shipped over where somebody would be willing to accept it. So the problem with pallets is that you need to, you know, you can't just, it's hard to accept it in, um, you know, your driveway or, you know, your apartment or whatever. It's a huge 10 foot by 10 foot pallet. And so really it's a logistical um, challenge. Like how do you even store that? And so I recall at the time in terms of finding a distribution center, we were very, very fortunate early on to have been able to work with Citizens of Humanity, which is a gene company based in Los Angeles. And they were so kind to literally use their facility as a means for accepting these large pallets. Once those pallets arrived, immediately we would just break down the pallet, have volunteers put it, load it into cars and directly bring it to hospitals in need. And that was really, really crucial because it was such a nightmare in trying to figure out how do we even get these boxes immediately to those frontline healthcare workers who really needed it the most. And so we were very, we were actually very like proud about it in retrospect. Uh, at the time, I think we were panicking. We had a lot of corporations reach out to us, you know, people who are not, you know, typically in the field of healthcare, reaching out to us saying, like, I have a factory, can we make cloth masks? People who are in the, the fashion industry, people who are, um, you know, the clothing manufacturing business, reaching out to us saying, you know, I have no experience in healthcare. I do not have any ability to make you, you know, medical grade mask or anything like of that nature. At the time, I think there was so little known and it was so hard to even get a hold of these like medical grade masks for like just general public. The CDC was keen on really in advocating for use of just a cloth mask, even like at the time, it was so it sounds so ridiculous now in retrospect, but like a bandana, uh, anything like a, like a gator, just like a covering. And so a lot of these apparel companies, Citizens of Humanity being one of them, the other large company that we worked with was MassQD. At that time, they were like, you know, we want to help out. Um, what can we do? And I remember Citizens of Humanity being one of the forefront key players in their industry to really redesign and revamp their whole uh, assembly line, making all these cloth masks available. And I remember they sold out multiple times, same as for MassQD, which is another big partner of ours, where they were just making tons and tons of masks at a very affordable prices just to get it out to the public so that individuals could have access to some face covering so that they could protect themselves and prevent the spread of COVID. That's how we actually got connected to all these great individuals. Um, and um, a lot of it was serendipitous. A lot of it was just perfect timing. And, you know, I, I probably have said so many times, I'm so grateful in this podcast and interview, but really, truly, you know, we wouldn't be able to do what we, we we've been so capable of doing uh, without the help of so many other individuals. It's it's a huge network of not just our team, but a lot of corporate donors. You know, I remember the time we were on phone calls with, um, you know, Ford Motors Company, and uh, they, they changed their whole assembly line um, to really adapt to the times, and they were making shields, and they were donating all these facials. Um, a lot of their plant workers were basically volunteers, uh, not getting paid, uh, you know, working overtime to making sure that those facials can make it to the front lines. And, um, it, it's it's so hard to believe how far we've come together as a society, as a community, and as a network. 
of, uh, you know, individuals who are just so motivated and really just says a lot about the human spirit. There have been so many struggles. I think, you know, from the outward, uh, like appearance, our organization has been really successful. But man, I, I, as a co-founder of this organization and really driving the internal distribution of all these domestic donations, wow, we've dealt with a lot as an organization. I think all of us have been very skilled in our own jobs as what we do <laughs> full time, that there's been so there's been a huge learning curve with this. Um, you know, as a physician in training, I have never dealt with, you know, working in a nonprofit, dealing with distribution strategies, trying to get pallets from one part of the country to another part of the country, I would say, has been a huge challenge um, and that we had to navigate kind of firsthand. Oh, my goodness. And in the time of a pandemic, too, right? Exactly. Wow. And, like, you know, we had a lot of items that were, um, you know, we had to, like, navigate. And we were, like, trying to find a, you know, like, a place to house all these oh, donations. Boy. It was, like, it was like something that we couldn't even imagine. We were yeah. thinking, oh, maybe we'll just operate on a small scale. And then, you know, when Norwex reached out and said, hey, you want to be part of our Million Maps project? And we're like, are you kidding me? A million masks? Do you even know how much that looks like on pallet form? <laughs> like, I didn't even know what a pallet was like a year ago. You know, I was never in any distribution. I have no distribution background. I've never, you know, been on so many phone calls with so many important people in so many industries, like CEOs. Like, you know, I was like talking to, you know, so many CEOs, so many, you know, founders of, of their companies and, you know, they wanting to help and donate and like navigating you know, distribution, like how do we get packages from one part of the country to another part of the country? Oh, I have a pallet of sanitizers from in, in Boston right now. How do we go about distributing these? Or, you know, with, with Norwex, that project with a million masks, like Dayu, uh, who's the other co-founder, uh, he had to like basically figure out how do we get, you know, all these pallets of items to different hotspot areas so that we could distribute them further. The other thing was like, we have a pallet of items, right? And we needed a ton of manpower and, and volunteers to really distribute those, those um, you know, last mile donations. And how do we go about all of that? So we really had to outreach and, and uh, um, expand our distribution strategy, working with other uh, similar PPE relief organizations so that we can expand our network um, to, you know, so many areas in need like hospitals, you know, like any, like some of the rural areas that we probably wouldn't be able to reach otherwise. Um, but, but it was a huge learning curve, you know, trying to get nonprofit status. We've not, none of us have any experience working in a nonprofit, let alone trying to get ourselves nonprofit status in the middle of the pandemic. That was a huge learning curve. Wow. And you, you actually, you actually did that. You, you got nonprofit yeah. status. Wow. We got nonprofit status in, so we were doing this in March kind of as a grassroots movement to, you know, get PPE. And, you know, we were thinking, oh, this would be probably be over in about a couple of months. You know, like people won't even, we, we would be irrelevant at that time. Then our organization caught a lot of attention with media and especially with, you know, with such a, you know, with so many large donations going around, you know, we were getting a lot of press, a lot of media, and that really kind of propelled our organizations to another level where we were getting large, large, large donations from large corporate sponsors and then from there like we were like oh my gosh like i don't think this is going away like COVID's not going away i think we're relevant to this day we need to get nonprofit status so we really made a huge push to get nonprofit status so that you know by may by may around but from march to may we basically went through all the paperwork got nonprofit status in may and then from that from there we've been able to operate you know pretty smooth and seam seamlessly now um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a huge learning curve. And 
simply is because we just had no experience or background. And really, like, this was a great opportunity for all of us, you know, to learn. We were all very eager in learning, um, but it was really time consuming. I spent a lot of hours on this project. Um, you know, I was working full time as a physician and wow. then I would go home. Mm -hmm. You know, I would like work a night shift in the hospital, you know, admitting COVID patients. And then I would come home and I'm like, oh, my gosh, I have to hop on to this interview. I have to, <laughs> I have wow. to return phone calls Eastern time, um, you know, to try to steal some of these donations and make sure they get to the final destination. Um, but I have been super blessed. I have been so fortunate to work with so many amazing individuals. I can't really, you know, say enough about how great our team it has been. Um, you know, I put in a lot of sacrifice, but I can't say how many hours my team has put into sacrificing, you know, for this project. Our, our website looks amazing. And that's because of uh, two individuals, three individuals who have really put a lot of time into this. And that's Josh, Leon, and Deanna. And they put a lot of hours into just making sure that the website is functional and operational. The version that you see actually right now has been going through so many iterations. Our initial website was initially like just a list of places where people can donate. As we realized that people's donations, you know, people had as only so many items that they had at home or, you know, in their offices. And then once we realized that, you know, that strategy was going to change over time, we had to really revamp our whole website to really adapt to larger corporate donations. Um, which was really where our main main uh, you know donation stream was coming from. Mm -hmm. So it's been actually a lot of fun. A lot, you know, we're very blessed, and you know, we'll be relevant so long as you know the donations are needed. And uh, we really hope to continue to expand to you know other communities. We feel you know we've accomplished a lot, especially during this time. So that leads me to the next question: What does the future hold for Donate PPE? Have you thought about that um, beyond uh, COVID? If and when? we finally get this pandemic under control. What's the future for Donate PPE? Yeah, so we've actually talked about this. Felicia, you're getting all these all these amazing questions, like hitting them all <laughs> on, the, on, the, on the mail. Um, the future, I think right now is very, we're very open. COVID-19 is happening now. You know, this is going to happen every 100 years, or we don't know when the next virus or next you know, pandemic will mm -hmm. happen, hopefully not anytime soon. I think, you know, what the future for Donate PPE is, you know, after a whole year of doing this, we have so much experience with PPE relief, um, you know, distribution strategies. I think there's still um, a way we could pivot our organization um, to uh, helping with relief, um, international relief, um, you know, uh, domestic relief as well to prepping for, you know, what, what can we do for future pandemics? Um, and using that knowledge that we've gained right now to apply it to, um, you know, what's going to happen next in the future, hopefully not anytime soon, but just in case that happens. Because, you know, I think as we learn with this pandemic, there have been so many problem areas that we've seen. We've seen that we were not prepared at all. We did not have any PP relief, relief resources for individuals who needed them. And so I hope that our organization can really be at the forefront of these important discussions when, um, this pandemic um, is over and hopefully that we can really change um, the outlook of what, what, how can we, what, what can we do to be more prepared for the future? Um, that's where I really see our organization, um, you know, going towards. Um, I, I do think that as long as, uh, you know, the, the, I think with COVID, our practices have changed significantly. Uh, you know, we are wearing masks now. Um, you know, we're, you know, there's a huge push to have people, you know, uh, change their hygiene patterns with, you know, you know, washing their hands, you know, frequently sanitizing. Um, you know, I, I think 
I think with all of this, I think it's so ingrained in our day-to-day behavior now that um, I think there, I think our organization may, there may be some, still some relevance because if we're adapted into this new norm, so to speak, you know, I think we can still service a lot of areas that are in need, you know, food banks and, um, you know, um, schools, even, you know, homeless shelters, um, where even like the flu season, a lot of this is going to re, you know, resurface again. And so even like wearing masks, will masks be, you know, like needed in hospitals or clinics? And, you know, what does that look like in the future? Um, you know, even like, like senior homes, nursing homes as well, too. So, you know, as long as there's a, um, you know, like a need, and I think only time can tell what, what this will really will change our practices. Um, you know, I, I really hope that we can stay, still stay relevant. And if we're not relevant anymore, I really hope that we could help internationally. Um, you know, we've already tried um, to expand our um, outreach internationally to third world countries, mostly in Africa. And, we, you know, our goal is hopefully to even provide international relief and expand upon that. And we've been working with other groups like Help for the World. Um, to really, um, you know, increase our uh, mission and our outreach to those areas. Well, that's really impressive that you guys have such lofty goals to perhaps expand this internationally. And um, I do think there could be some other applications, especially since, um, you know, COVID has really changed a lot of our standards of personal hygiene and maybe even for like the service industry, like different um, standards of hygiene. So there may be um, some need there for PPE to continue those segments or in other contexts. For for sure. Absolutely. And um you know, we're very, very flexible. I think, you know, we'll, we'll kind of see where our group takes us. I think we're still running at, you know, 150% speed. Um, you know, I think pre- like during the peak of the pandemic, we we're working at like a 500% speed and now we slow down a little bit, admittedly. Um, but I think, you know, we're, we're getting a ton of donations and, you know, I think, you know, there's so much need still available. And so if there's anyone that needs PPE items, I want to just give a shout out please, please email us at info at donatepp.org. And, you know, we're happy to donate to any, anyone who is needed for their organization or their school or know of anyone who's in need of PPE items. Just let us know. We're happy to help. How can people learn more about the Monster Dance and Donate PPE and connect with you? Yeah, so um, you can go to Madeline Editions. If you just Google Madeline Editions Monster Dance, there will be uh, one link that comes up, the first link that, that should come up on the Google search and you can learn more about um, our, our, our story about Monster Dance, where you can purchase Monster Dance, and also a little bit of background about um, all the um, individuals involved in that project. So uh, that's a great resource. Um, I would say for donatepe.org, you just go to our webpage. Similarly, um, you can see the work we've done. So just go to donatepe.org. There's um, places that we've already donated to, um, organizations that uh, we have uh, partnered up to increase our distribution network and also um, the partners that that we've um, partnered up with in terms of uh, corporations who've donated items to us um, and um, also Guy's Doodles pages there, which has all of the drawings that Guy has um, generously donated um, to uh, make it free and available as coloring pages. So if anyone has interest in that, that's available there. Um, in addition, um, if there's anyone who wants to extend, um, you know, any, any leads on anybody who wants donations or anybody who is in need of donations, please feel free to email us at info at donatepv.org. I think that's the direct, um, most direct way to get a hold of us if there's any, um, 
desire to donate or if, if there's any questions about how to get donations, I, I would say that's the best way to reach us. Incredible. Great. Good to know. And if people want to get in touch with you? You can find me on Instagram. Uh, my Instagram handle is Karen Sai underscore MD. And that's if you want to follow me on Instagram, that's uh, where I would uh, I would go. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to be on the Talking Taiwan podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I've been speaking with Dr. Karen Tsai, a physician based in Los Angeles, about Donate PPE, a nonprofit that she has co-founded and that has raised over $150,000 to date. This is part two of my interview with her after speaking with her about how she spearheaded the creation of Monster Dance, a children's book created to address the needs of children dealing with a world changed by COVID-19. To learn more about Dr. Tsai and any of the items mentioned in this episode, visit our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. There we'll list any related links. Join us next week for another episode on the topic of Asian hate. If you enjoyed this episode of Talking Taiwan, contact us on Talking Taiwan or on social media where you can find us at Talking Taiwan Podcast on Facebook or Instagram. Subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform, tell a friend about us, or better yet, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.